0: Thank you, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer. And for Brian Sullivan tonight, glad you could make it. The nightmare in the skies is now affecting July 4th travel. Stranding would-be travelers as we kick off the holiday weekend. A midnight deadline. Hollywood actors prepare to follow riders on strike and bring the entertainment industry to a standstill. Homeowners struggling to find insurance amid heightened risks for natural disasters. In one state, the push to force insurers to cover homes. Plus, inflation shows fresh signs of cooling, but some food favorites for July 4th are anything but a bargain. And you can't buy me a winning season. Why some of baseball's biggest teams are losers, no matter how much money gets thrown at them. Yeah, we're looking at you, Mets. That and much more. Last Call is up right now. Friday evening from CNBC's global headquarters, Supreme Court justices head for summer break after issuing a batch of decisions this week that disrupt the best laid plans by politicians, corporate America, higher education, and now the students who have to pay for it. Today, by a ruling of six to three, the nation's top court struck down President Biden's plan to forgive $430 billion worth of student loan debt a serious financial blow to many of the 43 million Americans who would have been eligible. But President Biden says he has a plan to bring relief to student loan borrowers. CNBC's Emily Wilkins joins us now with the latest. Hi, Emily. Hi, Contessa. Well, President Joe Biden is vowing
2: to find a way to give student borrowers relief after the Supreme Court struck down his plan to cancel up to $20,000 for individual borrowers borrowers not only lost the chance to see their debt reduced, but they will also have to restart loan payments in October after a two-and-a-half-year pause. In a speech this afternoon, Biden emphasized that most of those who would have benefited from the program made less than $75,000 per year.
3: I'm not going to stop fighting to deliver borrowers what they need, particularly those at the bottom end of the economic scale. So we need to find a new way. And we're moving as fast as we can
2: biden's new plan has three components first he'll be trying to get student debt canceled again this time using his authority under a different law focused on higher education second he's hoping to soon finalize a new program that ties how much a borrower owes to how much they make borrowers would only have to pay five percent of their, their discretionary income and after 20 years of payments everything left over would be forgiven and third for the first year of repayment borrowers who can't pay would not go into default or have their credit scores harmed. There are questions whether Biden's plan to use a different law to cancel student debts will be any more successful. National Economic Council Deputy Director Bharat Ramamurthy told reporters the initial attempt allowed them to offer release faster, while the new path will take longer.
4: Even a typical rulemaking process can take some amount of time. You have to do a proposal it has to receive comments it has to be finalized and so on what you heard from the president today was that uh, we are committed to moving as quickly as possible to get through all of those steps till we get a final proposal
2: Contessa the White House didn't say how much longer borrowers would have to wait but the regulatory process often takes more than a year Biden meaning that Biden's going to have to race to get this done before the 2024 elections
0: Emily thank you for starting us off tonight Now, investors were warned this decision could affect the bottom lines of a number of publicly traded companies. SoFi, for instance, facilitates student loan payments as a key part of its business. It has seen its stocks soar in the first half of 2023, up a whopping 80 percent despite closing down more than 4 percent today. Shares are still well off their highs from back in 2021. Not all of Wall Street is convinced this impressive run can continue, J.P. Morgan's Reginald Smith says SoFi's student loan business may not get the tsunami the stock seems to be reflecting. To discuss the recent run-up and where SoFi and similar companies are heading, Reggie joins us now. Reggie, good to talk to you.
3: You as well. Thank you for having me.
0: Why are you skeptical that this will put any steam in SoFi's sales?
3: Yeah, so uh, we've been cautious on that narrative for over a month now. And I think it boils down to two things. Number one, um, the interest rates right now, the interest rate environment is not necessarily conducive to refinancing. Similar to the home mortgage market, people just aren't refinancing. And it's hard to find or it's hard to save money uh, by refinancing with SoFi right now. The second um, reason is that uh, even today, many uh, borrowers are on income-driven repayment plans. And so so SoFi focuses on a, a higher income, higher um, FICO stored customer, those consumers and those borrowers would not have been impacted by this ruling uh, anyway. And so we've been cautious and we remain kind of cautious on the, on the-
0: It looks like there's uh, six analysts who have a buy or a strong buy here, 10 on hold, uh, and and the sell rating as well. Where else do you think that this decision from the high court, Reggie, is going to have an impact?
5: Yeah,
3: so we think it um, it will impact uh, consumers' uh, monthly cash flows. And so we see it impacting unsecured consumer lenders. You could see a spike or a rise in delinquencies as people kind of reshuffle and reallocate their funds and figure out which bills are most important, which debt is most important. And so you could see uh, for some of the um, the other unsecured lenders, you could see delinquencies tick up a bit as, uh, as consumers kind of rebalance their uh Budgets.
0: I I mentioned that you know the investors have been warned. We've seen this in other notes for for Target and the like. That if you have young people with less disposable income suddenly because they got to resume making these payments, that it could hurt the bottom line. Do you think some of this has been over dramatized?
3: Um, I wouldn't say that. Like, I I don't know if you look at the consumer finance names recently, they've all you know, kind of rallied. I'd I'd say that we're probably on the other end of the pendulum, where people are less concerned about the potential knock-on effects of of student loans uh, being reactivated. So I wouldn't say that. Um, As we look across our our coverage universe, there are a few names that kind of stand out um, as potentially, um, you know, in the crosshairs here, particularly lower lower, um, lenders that lend to lower FICO scores. So Upstart would be one in particular, where they focus on you know near prime customers, we think those customers and and borrowers rather um, will probably feel the most strain. Yeah, from the ruling,
0: Reggie. It's good to talk to you. Have a great weekend.
3: You as well. Thank you.
0: The high court's decision this week will have a long-lasting impact on the way Americans do business. Former federal judge J. Michael Ledig, who's advised multiple justices, Coca-Cola, and was a general counsel for Boeing, joins us now. Thank you for being on Last Call with us.
5: Thank you, contestant. It's a pleasure.
0: Judge, The first, uh, we want to talk about this decision against President Biden's plan for student loan forgiveness. How do you read into what the court decided and how it affects the landscape?
5: Go right. Today's decision, Contessa, was for the court a a straightforward question of statutory interpretation of the HEROES Act. Uh, It was under the HEROES Act that uh, the Biden administration uh, proposed the program. Under that act, uh, the Secretary of Education has the the power to waive or to modify the, the student loan program. At issue today in the, in the in the court was whether the complete forgiveness of loans under that emergency uh, provision in the Heroes Act uh, was uh, uh, either a waiver or a modification of the program. Uh, the Supreme Court held that it was neither a waiver nor nor was it a, a modification. Uh, rather, it was. Uh, in effect a complete rewriting uh, of uh, of the statutory authorization right uh, the courts held that uh, that the economic consequences of, of the forgiveness program uh, were staggering uh, nationally and that Congress uh, simply had not authorized uh, the Secretary of Education to, uh, to uh, 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 propose this forgiveness program.
0: Judge, yesterday the court ruled against affirmative action on racing college admissions. You anticipate this is going to have an immediate and lasting effect on corporate America. How?
5: Uh, the, of course, the, the, the affirmative action cases yesterday uh, arose in the context of, of higher education admissions policies, uh, specifically at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, uh, and, uh, and the court only ruled uh, in those cases uh, one on the grounds of equal protection and the other uh, on, on the grounds of Title VI, the Civil Rights Act, uh, so, so that technically, as a matter of law, Under those two decisions, uh, there will not be a widespread impact on, for instance, the the business or corporate America. However, uh, it's crystal clear that the same rule that the the court applied yesterday in the context of higher education admissions uh, will extend under Title VII uh, uh, immediately uh, so that companies will— uh, literally, I expect, in this coming week, begin to be sued for uh, their policies and practices and for their personnel and employment actions taken uh, under Title VII. And the, uh, the plaintiffs will argue that uh, Title VII uh, incorporates the same essential rule of race neutrality that, uh, that the court spoke, to, spoke about yesterday.
0: Judge Ludig, it's a pleasure having you on Last Call. Thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you, Contessa.
0: Today, we close out the first half of 2023, and here's what has happened to your money. The Dow jumped 285 points, the S&P up more than a percent, and the NASDAQ jumping nearly 1.5 percent. And as we put a bow on these last six months, the major indices end in positive territory, all in the green. The Dow inched up a relatively paltry 4%. The S&P 500 climbed an impressive 15.9%, its biggest first half gain since 2019. The star of the show this year has, of course, been the NASDAQ, soaring a whopping 31% already. The biggest first half gain for the NASDAQ in four decades, when it climbed 37% in 1983 big names like nvidia and tesla added some real muscle to the power moves and that brings us to our studs and duds in the s p 500. nvidia also reigned supreme in this index its stock nearly tripling thanks to the ai frenzy meta up 138 percent and carnival up 133 percent as for the duds look at advanced auto parts seeing half its value disappear in 2023 And thanks to a turbulent spring for the banking sector, you've got Key Corp and Zions Bank down significantly as well. Up next, Countdown to Midnight, an actor's strike hours away from happening in Hollywood, adding to the pressure from the writer's strike. Will the studios blink before it's too late? Plus, back to the box office future for the next big slate of blockbusters, courtesy of AI. Stay with us. It's time for tomorrow's news tonight, the stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. The final countdown is on to a midnight deadline in Hollywood, and it may bring the entertainment industry to a standstill due to looming fears of yet another strike on top of concerns about the box office. CNBC's Julia Borsten joins us now with the very latest. Hi, Julia.
7: Welcome, Tessa. The Screen Actors Guild contract with the studios expires at midnight tonight, and actors are pushing for higher wages and higher compensation for streaming in particular, plus protections around AI. These are some similar demands of what the writers were asking for and why they are now on strike. Now, sources tell me that studios and actors might negotiate an extension so actors can keep on acting during the negotiations. Now, that is what happened the last two times, or two of the last times that the Guild's contract expired. And it's very possible that the Screen Actors Guild won't strike despite them having a strike authorization. It's worth noting that SAG has not striked since 2000. But tensions are high right now. After two months of a writer's strike in which all new productions have been stopped, an actor strike would halt all remaining production. All the studios are currently impacted by the writer's strike and they would certainly be impacted by an actor's strike. But Netflix may be better positioned than most because it has so much production overseas where actors and writers tend not to be members of these U.S.-based guilds. Now all of this tension comes as Indiana Jones returns to the big screen with Disney's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And the stakes are high right now for all of Hollywood, but particularly for Disney, after the disappointing performance of two other Disney movies, Elemental and The Little Mermaid, along with the fact that this sequel cost a reported $295 billion to produce. Theater chain stocks are way up for the year, but the box office in the key summer season is running only 1.5%, 1.8% ahead of last year, and it is down about 15% from 2019, according to Comscore. Still, there's a lot of momentum for the Barbie movie from Mattel and Warner Brothers, which is due out next month, along with other upcoming films, including a Mission Impossible sequel and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Contessa, we'll have to see if those assortment of films can bring back audiences en masse. Well, until then, I'm going to brace myself for more Squid Game, Julia. Thank you.
0: Speaking of the blockbuster films, we have David Steinberg with us. He's the CEO of Zeta Global, an AI software company that uses its technology to predict whether a movie will be a box office hit or a flop. Let's take a look at some of the projections for some of the biggest movies that you just heard Julia mention. Indiana Jones out today. Here's uh, Indiana Jones where the projection is it's going to be a $950 million box office. And what does Zeta say?
4: Well, we'll pull out the cheesy sign and say over. Uh, you, you know, we're, we saw about a 40, first of all, hello, Katessa how are you? Uh, we saw a 40% increase in chatter on the internet. And this being his last stint as Indiana Jones, and they've said they will not make one without him, I think we're going to see very big.
0: Okay, so you think it's going to beat expectations. Number two on our list, the big one, Oppenheimer. It's going to be on IMAX film theaters. We were talking to the CEO of IMAX earlier this week about it. The projection is half a billion bucks. And what does the AI say?
4: The AI says over again. The the truth is that this one's benefiting from, A, having locked up every IMAX theater, which is not making some of the other filmmakers happy. And B, you're seeing an 18% increase in the focus in action films and a 341% increase in focus in war dramas. You're also going to have a very long holiday weekend, right? You've got Thursday into Tuesday. I think you're going to see a solid over here as well.
0: Except for those of us who will be here working on Monday bright and early. Don't miss it right here on CNBC. Number three on our list. Mission Impossible 7, Tom Cruise furious that he only gets a week on IMAX screens before Oppenheimer replaces him. The projection, $650 to $800 million, survey says.
4: Survey for this one says way over. This is going to be, we think this film will be the biggest box office beat that we're looking at. We're seeing not just a massive increase, we're talking hundreds of percent, there, Tom Cruise has opened more number one movies, 35, than anybody, and you're looking at someone who's just opened Top Gun at above a billion. You're seeing massive increase in chatter on this one, and we'll go out on a limb and say it'll be the biggest beat of any of
0: them. Okay, and the visual candy feast that is, or looks like it will be, Barbie.
4: Once again, I only had to make one sign, which made my team happy. <laughs> this was like, sort of like, I was like, yeah. well, if something happens, <laughs> we'll go like this, but yeah. it's, a, it's another over. The, the, not only do we think this one is going to do really well, Marco Robbie and Ryan Gosling are up hundreds of percentile points in research. You're also seeing massive merchandise tie ins. So we're seeing the merchandise tie ins here really driving transactions. And we're seeing big wins for Old Navy and the other companies uh, that are tied into it.
0: I really wish that I had asked you ahead of time about Elemental and Disney's uh, The Little Mermaid to see whether you could. Th- were we going to see an undersign it? Would you have predicted that those would flop? But alas.
4: So I, had- I think it would have been. And to remind you, Contessa, we were on a few weeks ago. We said Fast and Furious would be well below. And so far, we're right on that. But, you know, I, I think you're seeing an uptick that'll turn around the movie trend going into these next four movies. And we'll come back and we'll see if we were right or not.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you're predicting consumers are still ready to spend no matter how much they're gonna spend on their July 4th barbecue. It's great to see you, thank you for joining us today, David. Appreciate that.
4: Great to see you, Contessa, thank you for having me.
0: Still ahead, can the government make companies, make them, take on customers they don't want? In one state, a proposal would force insurers to cover any homes that take efforts to prevent wildfire risk. We're going to duke this one out ahead.
1: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
0: Welcome back to Last Call. California is bracing for triple-digit heat wave this holiday weekend, kicking off what could be a serious wildfire season because of record-breaking rainfall this spring. It just sparked so much vegetation growth. Wildfire risk has fueled an insurance crisis in the state. Allstate and State Farm announced last month they won't write new policies in California. Farmers said it put new limits on policies. AIG and Chubb have backed away from business in the state. Simply put, they just can't charge enough in premiums to justify the risk. And across California, many homeowners have been forced into a state-backed insurance option because they can't get a policy anywhere else. Consumer advocates are fighting to change that, asking state lawmakers to force insurers to white uh, wildfire policies for any homeowner who puts preventive fire measures in place. It's called mitigation. Carmen Balber is... Consumer Watchdogs Executive Director, who's pressed the legislature for the change. We also have Nancy Watkins. She's an expert on property insurance at Milliman Global Risk Consultant. It's great to see you ladies tonight. Thank you for joining me. Carmen, let me start with you. Give me a sense of why you think it's important to go to the state lawmakers and say, we got to change this. Insurers should have to issue policies if homeowners go out and clear away the shrubbery from their houses and and take efforts to minimize the risk to their homes? That's what
8: we have to do to reduce risk in the state of California. Homeowners who clear brush around their homes and who harden their homes against fire are 75% less likely to have their homes burned down. So in order to save insurance companies money, save our communities money and save homeowners money from the damage of those fires, we need to increase incentives for mitigation. But homeowners aren't going to spend that money if they don't know they're going to get insurance at the end of the day. This is a conservative proposal because we're requiring insurance companies to cover only the people who do the right thing, follow best practices to protect their homes from fire and reduce risk for all of us. And I just have to throw in there, you said at the top of the uh, top of the segment, that insurance companies can't get the rate increases they need in California. That's completely false. Insurance companies have been getting rate increase after rate increase in California, have proposed huge rate increases, some of which aren't, in fact, justified recently. And State Farm, one of those insurers you mentioned, has gotten five increases in the last five years for about 35
0: percent. Nancy, why don't you take it away and tell me a little bit about, one, the state insurance commissioner is in charge of the rate increases. Allstate just got its first auto premium increase approved in years. Give me a sense of where the situation is for the insurers in California uh, going into this next wildfire season.
9: Well, uh, I guess I would say that even though there have been rate increases in the last couple of years, Um, California was starting from many, many years of inadequate rates. Um, A recent study from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners has our uh, statewide average premium about half of the average uh, premiums of hurricane-prone states like Florida and Louisiana. I mean, we had such a deficit created by kind of a backwards-looking regulation um, that uh, would not allow insurers to me- to measure and uh, reflect their wise- rising wildfire risk. Um, they also could not pass along the cost of reinsurance in their premiums. So, um, even though they have been able to catch up somewhat in the last couple of years, um, rising reinsurance costs, inflation have just set the bar higher and higher. Um, at the same time, it takes a long time to get some of these rate increases. Um, There's some very big obstacles. There's a lot of uncertainty because the formulas um, that insurers are are required to use to justify the premiums don't actually make actuarially sense and don't reflect actuarially sound um, hurdles to hit. So essentially, we have an insurance market crisis right now. It might or might not be possible to head it off. Um, Mitigation is the key. But this le- legislation actually locks in insurers to, to, to an unlimited amount of, of risk at the at the company level. They can't control it, they can't predict it. All they get is, is more wildfire exposure at a time when they're already having a hard time reinsuring their portfolio. So um, if you uh, require insurance companies to add policies um, and without the ability to control or predict their future exposures, that means they might not be able to purchase them as much uh, reinsurance as they need. They might not be able to afford it. They could get downgraded financially. They could get set into mandatory regulatory acts. So yeah, just
0: yeah ju- jump in jump here, in Carmen.
8: Yeah, I mean, uh the, the picture Nancy is painting is, is terrible, but it's not the reality. Insurance companies, specifically home insurance companies in California, are four times as profitable as the national average. And I don't think there's a homeowner out there who's going to argue to you that lower premiums in the state of California is bad for homeowners. The reason we need this rule is because we need to start putting in place the incentives to make our state better. Let it me just ask economic- you, Carmen, on that we, note, let me just yeah. ask
0: you. If this this were to be passed into law, do you think that that would encourage the existing insurers who are offering property insurance to stay in California if they no longer can say whether their customer is somebody they want to keep insuring?
8: We're asking them to insure the least risky people. These are the people who have made it unlikely that their home will burn down from fires. And that is a contract that the insurance industry in California has to keep when they have been selling insurance to homeowners who have put their life savings into their homes, who have spent 30 years diligently, honestly paying their premiums to suddenly be abandoned by the insurance industry is not sustainable. That will create economic stability, economic okay, collapse. Well, we okay, so we see, see
0: we but, watch to see what the California State Legislature says about this issue. Carmen, Nancy, ladies, thank you both. Appreciate that. Tonight, the Securities and Exchange Commission is putting some Wall Street giants on notice after an onslaught of filings for spot Bitcoin ETFs. CNBC technology reporter
6: Mackenzie Sagalos has more. Mac, what are you hearing from the SEC? So, Contessa, it's looking like the Securities and Exchange Commission is still pushing back on green lighting the first ever spot Bitcoin ETF. And this is with names like BlackRock, ARK Invest, and Fidelity in the mix. The financial regulator apparently told both NASDAQ and CBOE Global Markets that the fresh wave of applications filed in the last two weeks are inadequate, adding that the filings lack clarity and comprehensiveness. That reporting, coming from The Wall Street Journal, cites people familiar with the matter. Now, the big sticking point here, the SEC has repeatedly said that they cannot approve this kind of ETF that custodies actual Bitcoin until it's structured to safeguard against fraud and manipulation. And that is exactly why so many people were pretty optimistic about this recent tranche of applications, because several of them folded in a surveillance sharing agreement that was designed to address that concern. But the SEC apparently said it returned the filings because there just weren't enough details about how that arrangement would work in practice. Now, I reached out to the SEC, and the agency declined to comment on the possibility of individual filings. But what is clear is that this report has seriously knocked investor confidence. Within 15 minutes of the news about the SEC again pushing back on a spot Bitcoin ETF, the price of Bitcoin plunged more than 4%, dropping below that key $30,000 threshold. Meanwhile, Coinbase, which was listed as the custodian for BlackRock's proposed ETF, fell right along with Bitcoin, Contessa. All right. Well,
0: I, the, here's what I don't understand. With all of that volatility, why anybody is jumping into crypto right now? It, it's been a huge hit, a year of, of just uncertainty around this.
6: Yeah, it's a great point, Contessa. Like, in just the last few months, we've seen the SEC come down hard on blue chip names in the crypto sector. But, you know, financial institutions, they're in the business of making money and ultimately offering a spot Bitcoin ETF is a way to do that, especially at a time when Bitcoin is coming up on a market event that happens roughly every four years and typically marks the start of a bull run. So some of this competition just has to do with big TradFi players not wanting to miss out. It's also a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, when BlackRock, the world's biggest asset manager with some $9 trillion in assets under management, jumps into the race for a spot Bitcoin ETF, it's seen as a significant tailwind for adoption, which then buoys investor confidence. And remember, of BlackRock's previous 575 ETF applications, all but one have been accepted. So in the last two weeks, we've seen this breakout in the price of cryptocurrencies and crypto-peg stocks. I mean, up until that report today, Coinbase had surged more than 30% in the last two weeks. Bitcoin was up around 18% over that same time frame. All right, Mackenzie Segalos, thank you for bringing us that.
0: Still ahead, a horse and buggy might be faster if you want to travel this July 4th weekend. I mean, there is a summer nightmare in the skies that just, well, we just can't seem to wake up from it. we back in a minute. we go, our last call watch list on this last day of June. All week, we've had a close eye on Apple as the first half of 2023 comes to a close. The tech giant is officially a $3 trillion company. With today's more than 2% gain, Apple has now surpassed that coveted threshold and remains the most valuable company in the world. This year has been a strong one for tech and for Apple in particular, the stock up nearly 50% so far this year. Also on the watch list, thousands and thousands of flights were delayed or canceled in the United States this week. It has just been a mess for travelers and for the crews who've had to be on those planes. But investors really are shrugging it off. Well, they are shrugging it off. Look at the stocks. United ended up 4 percent. Delta up nearly 11 percent. American more than 10 percent. And JetBlue more than 11 percent. I guess investors are just seeing only friendly skies. The stories, however, of nightmare delays, cancellations, whole times on the phone to customer service, those stories are everywhere. And the flight disruptions continue even as we've launched into this July 4th weekend, with United passengers getting the worst of it. Earlier this week, United CEO Scott Kirby blamed the FAA for the travel morass, saying the administration, quote, frankly failed us this weekend. He said that in a memo to company employees. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who oversees the FAA, just rejected that. He told CNN, quote, United Airlines has some internal issues they need to work through. I want to be very clear. Air traffic control issues are not the number one issue causing cancellations and delays. They're not even the number two issue. So what is? Sarah Nelson is the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA. Sarah, what are your members telling you? What's the problem? Contessa
10: we represent the flight attendants at United Airlines which has been the airline that has struggled the most this week including over 300 canceled flights today when the next worst airline was Southwest with only 12 cancellations so far today. Uh, So our uh, members have been stranded all over the country they have had a hard time getting through to crew scheduling we have been calling this out for a year when there was a meltdown last summer we talked about the fact that there was not enough internal infrastructure to be able to support the operation and in fact today there are half as almost half as many uh crew schedulers as there are at spirit airlines which is one-fifth the size of united airlines uh so we're experiencing the brunt of that and so are the passengers and this has nothing to do with atc or faa that's a known quantity going into this weekend
0: this picture that I'm seeing right here, that the crews are on cots in an airport, uh, this is unbelievable that the, the flight crews are enduring really abhorrent conditions when they're flying. So, one, you had weather and smoke, but as you point out, a disparate um, uh, way that the, the delays have been distributed, the cancellations have been distributed. Do you see a problem with the FAA and the air traffic controllers or is this in this case really a united problem? Contessa,
10: in this case, this is a United problem. So I wanna be really clear that uh, ATC is understaffed. We've known that, we know that right now. That's why we're working so hard to get an FAA bill passed before funding expires on September 30th. That is the job of Congress. In fact, the delays and the understaffing that we've had from ATC are the result of not passing FAA bills over the last 20 years and the delays and the the threatened shutdowns rather than having consistent funding. So this is a long-term problem that happened well before. before the Biden administration was in place. In this case with United Airlines, uh, this is an issue internally. First of all, going into the weekend, understanding that ATC is understaffed, understanding that Newark was going to get throttled with weather, there should have been a proactive uh, attempt on the airlines part to cancel flights ahead of time. In other words, not have people come out to the airport and then have nowhere to take them. And the response then has been abysmal with losing crews, in fact, uh, not knowing where they are, calling them, uh, thinking that they're in Orange County and they're truly in, in Houston. We've had to work to keep crews in the hotels, not that have them get kicked out of hotels and get them into hotels when they are stranded in the airports and sleeping on cots. It has been a horrid week for, for the crews. And of course, our workspace is your travel space. So we've been trying very hard to get this corrected as quickly as possible. And United needs to make good on the demand. That we've given the company and how to fix this, and they've been very slow to respond on that, too.
0: Well, I can't imagine that this made for very happy passengers when they finally did get to interact with the flight crews either. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you, Contessa. You too. Coming up, inflation showing new signs of easing, unless you're planning a gorgeous July 4th barbecue. We'll tell you what to expect to spend. Well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good inflation is slowing down. Newly released data from the Commerce Department shows prices only rose three-tenths of a percent last month. Year over year, inflation rose 3.8 percent, the lowest it's been since April 2021. But food prices have increased nearly 6 percent in the last year. With this massive holiday weekend coming up, let's see how... Prices for this year's Fourth of July barbecues will compare to last. President and CEO of Stu Leonard Supermarket, Stu Leonard Jr., your your company has stores in Connecticut and New York and New Jersey, all places where people enjoy a nice July Fourth barbecue. Let's see. Uh, let's start with the good news because I'm in a bit of a Pollyanna mood. <laughs> cherry cherries. If we're going to make a cherry pie, are they higher or lower than hey, they were last year?
11: They're they're about three to four dollars a pound lower than last year that's one of the bright spots right now and they're really delicious right now
0: last year ten yeah, have, bucks a pound that's pretty good now yeah, five bucks
11: yeah you know it contests a lot of this is supply and demand like I know you've done a lot on the weather and the airlines you know flight delays this affects our farmers you know and you notice the peach crop even with weather down in, in Georgia right now it's really tight so peaches are going to be up a little bit. You know, this weather affects even things like this. Here's some beautiful corn. Everybody's going to be putting that out on the grill right now for for the pork. That's about a dollar an ear. That's probably up about 20 cents an ear over last year. Um, You've seen some things that are pretty held steady. Uh, We have ground beef right now at the same price as last year. Chicken's a good deal right now. Baby back ribs are a good deal. Bacon has dropped in price. Lobster's dropped in price. So the key here for everybody, navigate your way through this um, uh, 4th of July right now.
0: Yeah, I I mean, it looks like if you really want to be cost conscious or or choose items that are cheaper this year, less expensive. We never say cheaper in grocery stores, do we? (laughs) Uh, It looks like your baby back ribs uh, last year were $5.99 a pound, this year $3.99 a pound whereas organic beef burgers are up a buck a pound. So maybe you yeah. choose, you know, maybe it's about which, which meats you choose. The thing that everybody, well, stew has gotten stuck on is the eggs, right? Like it doesn't yeah. matter, egg prices, what are you seeing?
11: Well, you know what, those are down dramatically. They're back to normal prices again. You know what you had sort of the, the, the avian flu hit the farmers and it, and it decreased the flock size. Um, and that's why you saw the high egg prices. They're back to their normal, uh, uh, you know, flock sizes again. So uh, you're seeing eggs down at normal prices again. That's a bright spot. Um, you know what? If you want to save some money, Contessa, here's what you do. Feed the kids hot dogs, okay? <laughs> These are 75 cents basically roughly each. If you put them on a bun, it's about a buck. So you can get somebody happy for a dollar. If you want to start upgrading, you got your normal beef chuck burger right here these are about two bucks each now if you want to start treating the adults to something nice we have these really nice filet mignon and ribeye burgers Mm. right here those are about five dollars each so if you want to save money go with a little leaner part of of beef like for instance even go get a frozen burger these are only a little over a dollar each So you can navigate your way through this 4th of July and save some money if you want.
0: The customers that we're seeing shopping behind you, when your customers are coming in, are they choosing less expensive food overall?
11: Yeah. You know what we're seeing contested this year, even though our traffic volume is up at Stu Leonard's at our stores, and we'll be serving about 50,000 people this week just for 4th of July. What we're noticing, they're putting one less item in their Mm. basket due to the economy.
0: Stu Leonard, Happy Fourth!
11: Hey, you know what? You can't forget, contestant. Oh. We have this waiting. We have this waiting for
0: you. Okay. I, <laughs> you I would like love to cook guy. that up. You know what? I've got a great grill for that steak right there. I mean, that is a monster. I'm coming by to swing and by to pick that up,
11: Stu. Yeah. Thank you. I might, I, I might bring this home with me tonight, right here.
0: Only <laughs> if <Please laughs> you invite me. Coming okay. up, <laughs> money. It doesn't matter how much there is. It's just not buying wins for some of baseball's biggest teams. Where's the beef? Stay with us. Good news, Mets fans. For now, your team is currently up 2 to 1. Top of the third, but come on, let's be honest. It's been miserable season for Steve Cohen's Mets. They're second from the bottom of the NL East. If the season ended today, the Mets wouldn't even make the playoffs, despite having the highest payroll in the MLB. The Mets aren't alone. Out of the top five biggest spenders in baseball, only the Yankees and the Dodgers would make the postseason. But as wild card teams, meantime, two of the smallest payrolls in the MLB are balling on a budget. If the regular season ended today, the Rays would finish at the top of the AL East, while the Orioles would hold a wild card spot. So, not only can money not buy happiness, it also can't buy baseball. To get to the bottom of why this is, let's bring in Joe Pompliano, investor at Pomp Investments and the host of the Joe Pomp Show podcast. Thank you for being on Last Call.
12: Thanks for having me, contestant. Okay. Yeah, I mean,
0: did you God. go. I mean, one. If you can explain why money can't buy happiness, I'm. I'm interested in that too.
12: Yeah, baseball's at a really unique place right now where some of the highest spending teams have some of the worst records and are at risk of missing the playoffs. And some of the lowest spending teams have some of the best records in baseball. And I think the New York Mets are the perfect example. Steve Cohen came in and he bought the team for $2.4 billion, which was the highest money ever paid for an MLB team. And he said, Look, I make enough money on my hedge fund. I don't want to make money here. I'm simply here to win. And he's backed it up. He spent a lot of money. They're going to spend over $350 million on salaries this year alone. That doesn't even account for the $100 million plus in luxury tax penalties that they'll have to pay also. But the problem is, when you go and build teams through free agency, you're typically targeting older players who can either get injured or their production starts to decline. And that's what we've seen with the New York Mets. Their top three pitchers are 36 years old, 38 years old, and 40 years old. And they only have two people in their entire lineup. That are in their 20s they've dealt with injuries and inconsistent play all season and then when you look at the other side of the coin there's a bunch of young teams the rays the orioles the diamondbacks the reds etc that have built their team through the draft and are now able to take advantage of mlb's new rules that play into a little bit more of an athletic team
0: so why don't we see more money flowing into the farm teams where you've got really young guys and really horrible pay abysmal shameful almost
12: Yeah, it's really a long-term game, right? Like, the Mets are trying to win now. Steve Cohen said, I want to deliver a championship within the first three to six years, and that's been his stated goal since he bought the team. So he's spending money, throwing money at players that have proven themselves in the major leagues. A lot of these other teams have been bad for a decade plus, and they're trying to build up a talented roster through the draft in a cheaper way. It's panning out for them this year, but it doesn't always work that way either.
0: All right, we're watching some other news out of the sports media world here, Joe, another wave of layoffs at ESPN today uh, as they're downsizing in the streaming area. The Cuts reportedly expected to be about 20 on-air talent, including Jeff Van Gundy, Max Kellerman, Susie Kolber, and Jalen Rose. What do you think?
12: Yeah, it's the same thing. ESPN's in a really unique place right now. On one hand, people will say they're in 74 million households. Those households pay $10 a month subscription fee to their cable package, and they're making $740 million a month without selling ads or anything else, just off cable. But on the other hand, that number used to be 100 million. So they've lost 25 million cable subscribers over the last decade. Disney lost $4 billion on their direct to consumer package last year. And the stock at Disney is down 15% over the last five years. So they're at this crossroads right now. And Bob Iger comes in as CEO, returning in November 2022. And essentially what he's trying to do is tighten the belt a little bit. So he's going after 20 of the, what we'll call higher earning on-air personalities at ESPN and trimming some of the workforce there as part of a larger workforce trimming of 7,000 employees at Disney in total.
0: Not the first time it's happened, not the only place it happens. It'll happen again elsewhere too. Joe, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you like your music on the go, headphones all the time? Portable music, courtesy of a big moment 44 years ago tomorrow night when Sony released this.
3: You really feel the music with the Sony Walkman? The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound.
0: Well, not everybody could feel it because it was not an overnight success. They posted disappointed sales for the first few months. But then the Walkman went on to become one of Sony's most successful brands of all time. By the end of its run, the company sold more than 400 million Walkmans worldwide, some of which you can still find on eBay today. But now you're going to pay a lot more. We just looked it up. 200 bucks for a vintage Walkman? Why not? Hope you have a happy, healthy, fun July 4th holiday. Last call's off Monday and Tuesday, but Brian's back next week.
1: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery.